0: Working through a series called Smitten. And when you're smitten, you are in love and you are greatly affected. And the Bible uh, reveals God as a lover, which so often goes, I think, underlooked at or under talked about. And the world is constantly talking about lovers and what love is. And the Bible is chock full of ideas about that. And perhaps as a combatant to the idea of a. Long, white-haired, grandfatherly figure that some of us maybe were handed as a child about what God looks like. We've just been walking through the Psalms and again, thinking about that, that many of these Psalms, for instance, were written by King David, who was an accomplished, powerful king, a man, you know, in his midlife, and he's writing these Psalms. And we, we discussed when we opened this series what it would be like if a person at your cubicle tomorrow, you know, you guys went to the water cooler and he's a middle-aged man and he's in tears and he's weeping and he said, man, my, my pillow's soaked with tears because I'm so overjoyed with this love I found, you would be like, man, get a hold of yourself. That's really weird, you know, you're supposed to be way beyond those years and yet here it is right in the middle of the Bible talking about God, talking about our relationship with God. I would venture to guess that probably every single person in this room has made a wish at some point. Maybe quite recently you've made a wish. Certainly there are things that you want. Um, some people wish upon a star. Some people blow out candles. But before they do, they make their wish. Um, this one here was kind of my, my favorite form of, of wishing was this. And my neighbors hated it. Uh, my parents got annoyed. I never understood why, but it just seemed like the wishes multiplied as you know, as they blew out into the wind, and they seemed to have a better chance than candles that went out. That just—that was my logic as a kid. Uh, I'm not sure why we continue to make wishes sometimes on these me- methods, because the the wish-to-grant ratio for my own personal life has been disastrous with these methods. For instance. I know that you're not supposed to tell the birthday wish because then it won't come true, but I've been trying for 40 years, so I might as well spill the beans. A horse, that's all I've really wanted. I mean, literally, for 40 years, as long as I could think, maybe 38, maybe at 2, I just wanted a horse, that's really all I wanted. And so year after year, I'm blowing out more and more candles, and it's just, you know, it's just not working. Um, Here's what's interesting. I, I think we do this, we continue to make these kinds of wishes because it doesn't really cost us anything, right? Um, I mean, in a way, we just say, well, might as well try again. It doesn't really cost us anything. I think some people take that same mentality to God. And we and we wish upon God a little bit like crawling up on Santa's lap or blowing out a candle or whatever else. And if we come to it with a mindset that says this, you know what, it doesn't really cost me anything. I might as well try God as well. Um, then off we go to the races and we say, well, I've tried prayer. I've tried God. And just like my birthday candle story, uh, it just it's not working for me. I've tried Christianity, it's not working for me. The question that we want to look at a little bit uh, this morning with Psalm 62 is this um, Is it just a childish whim to wish? Is it a childish whim to put your to put your hope in something, or is that actually something that God has designed into us and that we should do? In John 16, 33, Jesus said these words In this world you will have trouble. And here is the master teacher succinctly putting our life story into one little sentence. In this life, you will have trouble. This is why we wish, right? This is why we hope, because things are broken. Things aren't going according to our will all the time. And so there's lots of room for wishes and for hopes. And I wish this were different. I I hope that changes. and And on and on we go with these kinds of things. Now, he goes on to say this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, depending on what your week is like, perhaps, you would say a hearty amen to that? Or maybe your response would be, really? Is that really true? I wonder how the disciples thought as they thought back on some of the things Jesus taught them as he is being hauled off into this mock trial, after he goes into the grave. Even after resurrection and then leaving them. I think they would probably call these things back to mind and say, I've overcome the world. And again, we see from scriptures, the scriptures let let us into that dialogue, that there was doubt. There was um, confusion over this. Is this idea that I have overcome the world, is that comforting to you? Does it really work? Does Jesus really deliver? That's what we're going to look at this morning. A lover who delivers. Now, as we talk about this theme, the ideas of salvation and omnipotence and grace come pouring in. And so, I don't have any fill-ins for you, but that's just kind of a basic structure of what we're going to look at. Those are the theological ideas that we're going to explore as we look at this chapter of Scripture. In your notes, I have the word deliver, which uh, in our modern-day usage, we use it for lots of different things. It could be that someone's coming through on a promise, that they delivered on a promise. It could be the, the assist- of the birth of a baby, or even a person who did deliver a baby, right? Deliver. The one I want you to underline, because for the sake of our conversation, it's going to be this last one, to set free or to rescue, to be delivered. And as I looked at those uses of the word deliver, really all of them apply to God. All of them apply to the Christian story revealed in the Scriptures, which is pretty awesome. One of the things about the Psalms, you can just write this passage down and look it up later, but Psalm 1831 asks a great question. By the way, fun way to just study the Scriptures, look at the questions that are raised in a a chapter of the Bible. Look at the questions that that the psalmist raised, for instance. Here's one of the questions it raises. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It's a question, right? It's a question really about deliverance and about coming through on promises. Perhaps you, but for sure Christians through the ages are often and have often been ridiculed for leaning wholeheartedly on a God that they cannot see. Closer examination brings to light the truth of this matter, though. If you look at all people in all of time everywhere, everyone places their hope on something or someone. Period. We all place our hopes on something or someone. Now, the only question that remains then is this. Which one is best? Which one actually delivers time and time again? Is there one that's true? Now, I'll tip my hand. I'm a Christian pastor speaking from the pulpit of a Christian church that has the word Bible in the title of the church. I'm going to put the idea forward that it's Jesus that's our hope and that there is, in fact, a singular hope to build your new marriage on, to build your life on, to raise your kids on, to make your career decisions on. But that's really the only question. It's not whether, whether one puts their hope in something and, and another doesn't. It's that all do, which one actually works, which one actually is true. If you look at kind of through the ages, the different things people have leaned on, trusted in, hoped for, to deliver, to save, to be their rock, they're wide and varied, right? And I uh, happen to have met some new new old friends here that are in from another country. As you travel, this gets even more uh, exponentially complex about what people put their hopes on. But really, there's kind of some themes that I would say um, grab the entire uh, human race. Last week, I picked a little bit on a couple of um, styles of religion, false religion, that have pinned their hopes on a super modified God. They've taken the God that's been revealed in scriptures and kind of like those car guys, there's tons of car shows right now on super modified cars. We've got a few car guys in the room. They're like, "Yeah, um, it's it's a little bit like uh, you know guys that super modify a car and they get it so tricked out, but they left the engine out, and so it really no longer even is a car. It no longer resembles a car. And what and what a, what a universalist does, what a annihilationist does, is they they take the God of the Scriptures and they twist and they mold and they and they form it into such a way that it really no longer is the God of the Bible." There's there's really various flavors of hope that people put their hope on. And and there's uh, in two big categories, there's kind of secular flavors of hope and religious flavors of hope. Depending on your upbringing, depending on what state you were born into, probably would help direct some of that. Let me just throw out a couple of secular flavors of hope. See if they resonate. See if these are ones that you've seen um, as you kind of live life. One is the entertainment or distraction flavor of hope. Okay, this would be a sports can very much be this kind of a thing. Um, the Sharks started their season last night, right? And and did they win or lose? See, we had someone clapping right now. So many of you happen to know that they cream the Phoenix Coyotes, right? Here's what I realize is this: in certain seasons of my life, a the start of the hockey season, and b the fact that they won was a bigger deal than it should have been. And I only see that now looking back. I did not see it in the midst of that. I loved Jesus. I was in ministry. I was pursuing God. But I realized, man, this subtle little thing was was that. And you've seen people, some of you might be these people, where your hopes literally rise and fall according to the record, right, of how things are going. How are you doing? They're two games back. What? That's how you were doing. I know. They're two games back. You see how tied, I mean, that's that's tied into a sports team, right? And if they win, you're on top of the world. If they lose, you're pretty bummed out. That doesn't have to be sports. It could be Real Housewives of some county. It could be shows. It could be travel. Travel can, for some people, be a kind of escape, right? I'm just looking forward to that next trip. Just get me away to that next trip. I'm pinning my hopes on having a really, really, really good time. What happens when it rains? What happens when the brochure and the reel doesn't live up to each other? What happens when your kids didn't get the memo that this is supposed to be vacation and peaceful for you as a parent? I mean, on and on it goes, right? So travel can be a bit of a thing. Um, Some homes, now again, if you have a nice home, I'm thrilled for you. I have a nice home. But some people have built their home into this haven, into this place where they say, I just want to be at home in my little kind of personal space. And I've built it to where I can be in pretty much control of everything there, and I just want to have that be that. That can be the distraction or entertainment. Kind of a subset of that might be substance, right? Many people are tied into their hope, their rock, what they cling to, what they run to in trouble is some kind of legal or illegal substance that either acts as a medic- medication for them, it acts as some kind of a way to forget their, their, their problems or what have you. Here's another flavor. Another flavor is power. Some people have pinned their hopes, whole nations have pinned their hopes on military power. Bring that down into a more local level though, home alarms, car alarms, uh, that kind of thing. Even more personal uh, is a can of mace, um, pack and heat. You know, I don't know what you do, but you know, the idea is this. If I can have superior power over someone, either military strength or some kind of a social thing where as long as I can pretty much like I'm doing right now inadvertently, look down on everyone, um, then, then I will be okay with that. That will be what I cling to. At least I have status over this other person. And we've all, we've all worked for these people. We've all worked with these people. Some of us are related to these people. Some of us struggle with being this person. It's a false hope. It's a false hope. It's a secular version of a false hope. Now, I could go on to talk about money, status, people, attention, pleasure, education, On and on and on it goes. And when you see someone really worked up and really fired up for a cause, underneath that is some sort of a thing that goes, I wonder if there's a hope tied into that. I remember being accosted one time by a woman who wanted me to sign a petition um, about saving a species or an animal. And I was just politely letting that go until she got in my grill about it and just was really angry that I wasn't going to save whatever she was talking about And I don't remember my specific words. I think I thought worse than I said. There was a little bit of a guarding of the tongue before it came out. But I said something to the effect of this. I said, if you were pouring your Saturday, your energy, your time into saving the lives of children, I would be all about your little paper. I love animals, but not to that extent. And she was fired up at me. She did not like that answer one bit. Underneath her aggression toward me, underneath her not just politely sitting outside of Starbucks and letting me sign it or not, was maybe something driving that there's a cause here. I'm a part of something bigger, and I pin my hopes on the fact that that I'm accomplishing something in this world. I don't know that, but sometimes that's what's underneath it. Interestingly, even to church people in America, they find this surprising. Jesus and Paul and many other New Testament writers save their harshest criticism for the religious flavor of false hope. Ready? Let me let me let you in on a couple. Other Jesus'es. Other Jesus'es are mentioned in scripture that there are other Jesus'es out there, false Christs, false messiahs, false saviors and not to buy into them. Ones that aren't rooted in history Many times today we get someone talking about Jesus and they don't want to be confrontational and so they give the nice guy, good teacher approach. Have you heard this? If you are of the nice guy, good teacher variety of Jesus in here, um, it means a couple of things. It means, A, that you don't believe the Bible and that you don't believe this is a reliable testimony about Jesus because that's not the Jesus that's talked about in here. The nice guy, good teacher doesn't jive with Scripture at all. Nice guys don't get killed for preaching Uh, And they also don't lie about being an eternal, creative God of the universe, both of which happen to Jesus, right? He said, in fact, I am God, and he got killed for preaching such a message. In that sense, neither a nice guy nor a good teacher, if that's all you kind of pin him as and bottleneck him as. Um, There are those who take religious rituals too seriously and take God too lightly, Jesus leveled a bunch of critiques one time, a bunch of religious people that had done this. They were so bought up into their traditions, they were so bound by their rituals and thinking that somehow that was the way of hope, that was what was going to get them through to eternal life, that's what they were striving for, that they missed Jesus right in front of their face. Here's a few of the things that he called out. Washing your hands but killing prophets. That's taking the rituals a little bit too seriously and God too lightly. Tithing from your spice rack, but neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I could go on and on and on, but you can read it about it yourself. Matthew 23 is where this is from. He summed it up best maybe this way in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Not just the religious flavors, but those who were teaching the religious flavor of hope, which is a false hope to people and leading people astray. Here's who he's talking to. You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much what? A son of hell as you are. Now, what's classic is there's a a portion of Scripture where the disciples come along and they go, "Uh, Jesus, do you know that the religious teachers are offended by your teaching? You know, as if he doesn't know this, you know. I mean, A, he's God. B, he's he's there and he heard the things. Of course I know what I'm saying. Twice as much a son of hell as you are by doing this idea of taking rituals really seriously but God too lightly. Of course, Israel's history was, uh, was chock full of this. Maybe one of the, one of the most uh, pronounced pictures of this was on Mount Horeb where um, the people and the opinion makers in the camp get a little bit tired of Moses being gone, right? He's up getting the Ten Commandments. It's taken a little bit too long. And so, as Aaron would later recount, as he's giving, you know, uh, essentially he's giving testimony before a, con- a congressional hearing, and he spits out something like this. Uh, Your Honor, we don't really know what happened. All the gold was brought here. We threw it in the fire and out popped this golden calf, and we began to worship it. Don't really know. We've shredded documents. We don't really know what's happening with it. But that's the lame excuse that he gave. So when you hear that on C-SPAN or whatever else, That's where it came. It's just been there for a long, long time. That was Aaron's excuse for what happened. And there it was, bowing down before a false hope. Always easier to see this in another culture than in our own culture, by the way. Many many of you in this room go, I would never, ever feel tempted to bow to a golden calf. But you can't walk through your malls and have a lens that maybe an international student would have and look around and realize what's being worshipped in our culture. In Isaiah 44, this is brought up, that somehow, uh, really the prophet Isaiah is making fun of the idol maker. And he's talking about the idol maker and saying, you know, somehow the idol maker is able to tell the difference between which side of this piece of wood is endowed with power from on high to save and which end would make a good table. Which end is able to be bowed down to and, and, and deserves our, our sacrifice and our attention and our rituals, and which we should just burn in the fire to heat up some muffins. And somehow the idol maker knows which piece of the wood does this. He says in Isaiah forty four uh, verse nineteen, he says this no one considers, listen to this through the lens of our culture, okay? No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Half of it I burned in the fire, also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. There's that word again that we're looking into, deliverance, salvation, being set free, needing rescue. I bring these other ideas up because a part of instilling truth, a part of looking at what has God revealed himself to be, is to dismantle false ideas about God. Someone said it this way one time, perhaps the most important detail about your life is what you think of, what comes to your mind when I mention the word God. Here's why I think that's true. Because bad theology leads to bad living. not talking about morally bad living. I'm talking about broken living. Bad theology leads to bad living. If I've got a map and I'm holding it upside down and I'm actually running headlong the opposite way of where I want to get to, that's always going to be broken until I figure out what's true and what's going to lead me home. Psalm 62. I want to just read this chapter in its entirety and let you look at it. God is mentioned seven times in this psalm. The name used in this, the the word, is in the plural form. As a Christian, that we get the rest of the Bible, we would recognize that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in their power. They're united in their salvation effort, and that God uses all three to save. Listen to Psalm 62. It's a psalm of David. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. We just sang that. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast Love, an idea we looked at last week, for you will render to a man according to his work. As Christians, we unashamedly and wholeheartedly lean on the God of the Bible as our salvation. That is where we run to in the storm. Now, lest you think this is kind of head in the sand, wishful thinking on the part of of a king who's out of touch. You know what he does right there in the second and third stanza? He lists his problems. So many psalms do this. They start with an affirmation of faith in some way, shape, or form, and then they list the problems that are there. So it's not just that we just talk a bunch of hopeful talk. Meanwhile, out of the side of our mouth, we're we're saying, but here's all the issues. But here are the problems kind of in a praise sandwich. He starts with affirmation of faith, lists the problems, and comes back to the fact that God alone has the power. He's not uneducated. He's not down and out. He's not in his last resort, but rather a charismatic, proven warrior king. And what does he say? Oh, people, look to God. Not to your king to save you. Not to government to save you. Not to a new policy to save you. Look to God, oh peoples. That's where the power belongs. And we've seen in Old Testament great examples of kings leading their people saying, our hope is not in the number of chariots we have. It's not a military might or military strategy or any of that or the wealth that we've amassed. Our hope is in God. And of course, we've seen exactly the opposite as well. Now, generations later, from his same lineage, an angel comes to announce miraculously the birth of the Messiah comes to a young girl, and he announces this. And Mary's response, of course, is shock and awe. And he says this in Luke 1.37, the angel does, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want to look for a moment, if we're looking at a picture of God and what he is like and what he's revealed himself to be, and the last portion of this passage that says power belongs to God. Let's look for a moment at omnipotence, the idea that God is all-powerful. One of the things this does not mean is that God can do everything. Can God do everything? Let me prep you for freshman philosophy class at West Valley College, should you choose to go that route. You will have a snarky professor want to identify all the Christians in the room, might even have them stand up. Then she will address with this question, can God create a rock that he cannot lift? How many of you have, have had some sort of similar question posed in an educational setting? Raise your hand, okay? What I've longed to do, here's one of the things I, you know, aside from a horse, I would also blow out candles and think of this. I would love to go back to that class now and answer in some different ways than I answered then. I remember as an 18-year-old sitting in that class as a passionate Christian follower and time and time again watching her kind of weave things in and, and, and basically try and trap Christians into these different things. Let me just arm you with this, okay? Can God do everything? Let me tell you some things God cannot do. God cannot lie, right? So God can't do everything. God can't die. God can't do everything, God can't be both eternal and a created being. God can't act against his nature. And God will not act outside of his own will. So the answer to that question is, no, he can't do that. And they'll say, gotcha! God can't do everything. And you go, of course God can't do everything. Can't lie or die. Can't, you know, just rattle off some different things. But what it does mean is this. It does mean that God holds all power over all of creation, and that means that not an atom in everything that's created is outside the spectrum of his rule and reign and control and power. God is all-powerful. Now, I look at the angel saying, and maybe the angel was allowed to speak in hyperbole. I'm not sure exactly. With God, all things are possible. And she could look at that and say, gotcha! But doesn't mean that God can do everything, as we just looked at. But God is all-powerful. All power belongs to God. Now, this is a huge comfort. As you take this reality, it's a huge comfort for a Christian. And it's an equally huge threat to a wicked person. Right? If you are running from God, this is really problematic. I mean, this makes your palms sweaty and your heart race. And you go, man, if this is absolutely true, then even that whale over there, even that great fish over there would be under God's control and I might not be able to juke God and get away from him. If you're a Christian and even in your rebellion, God's able to cause a tree miraculously to grow up and offer you shade just because God can do that. Powerful. Powerful. A proper picture of God offers you a proper perspective on your problems. Offers you a great perspective on the circumstances that you're going through. It actually begins to inform your prayer life. It informs your pocketbook. It informs your decisions about time and moving forward in life. Now, nowhere is the unmatched power and deliverance of God on display than when you and I are walking through testing and trial times through the storms of life. That's when the unmatched power of God is most on display. Another question, write this down. Psalm 113 verse 5 Ask this question, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Who is like Him? Is there anyone else like Him? So many examples of deliverance that I could offer to you here. Um, I could go back to Exodus from Egypt. Uh, I could talk about the power over death that was on display with Christ. But I want to take you to one uh, from a 9th century B.C. Israelite prophet. And uh, the setting, just so you know, is that King Ahab is ruling over Israel. And instead of promoting God as the deliverer, instead of doing what David just did as a good king, saying, O oh, people, turn your hearts to God. Pour your heart out before Him. Look to Him as your refuge. He's the stronghold. Instead, his heart was turned away by his foreign wife, as was predicted in the Scriptures. And his wife influenced him to promote worshiping, putting hope in, leaning on Baal. The false god, Baal, instead of Yahweh. The kingdom is suffering intensely under a 20-month drought at the, at the time, uh, Elijah goes to one of the servants of Ahab who's still faithful to Yahweh and through him he gets to Ahab about confronting him and Elijah the prophet raised up by God denounces his false worship and challenges him basically to a religious contest like a fight to the death junior high boys perk up at this point this is like This is like pay-per-view, right? This is the caged fight thing, and warriors are going to go in there, and that's basically what he's done. He said, I challenge you to a duel. King Ahab. And Elijah says, I tell you what, on the one side, it'll be me and Yahweh, the one true God. And on your team, you can have Baal and the 450 prophets that are helping to offer up these rituals and whatnot. Sound good? They all agree. Everyone loves a fight, so they say, sure, let's do this. And he starts off with this kind of epic question. This should really be turned into a movie. He starts off with this epic question and pronouncement. Listen to this. This is at the start of the day. In 1 Kings 18.21, he says this, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, here it is, ready? How long will you go limping Between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Isn't that epic? I mean there's there's a sweeping soundtrack behind all of this, I'm sure. But he comes to the people, and I think the message is so pertinent for me in my life. It's so pertinent for you. How long will you go limping between two decisions? It's it's not really that complicated. In the sense that if this is not true, if there's falsehood in this book that the God of the Bible revealed in the Scriptures is not true, then choose not to follow Him. And follow Baal. Let Baal pull you out of your distress. Put your hope in Baal. But if He is God, quit going back and forth. Get off the fence. Follow him with all that you are. And the people didn't answer him a word. Now, Elijah permitted his opponents to inve- to invoke their deity first, um, but obviously their efforts bore no results. So they decided to do all these different things. You can read all about it in First Kings chapter 18. It's quite um, interesting, to say the least. And uh, they spend all this time doing it, and then, of course, he actually ends up mocking them um, wondering if their God is um, off doing all sorts of different things. Uh, one of them would be that maybe he's um, using the facilities. Maybe that's the problem and that they should just wait a little longer. And so he's sitting here basically calling out false teachers. You know what Jesus did? He didn't politely just tolerate, let everyone preach false messages. If it's a false message, it's actually preaching a demonic message that is leading people away. It's giving them a false hope. So Jesus called them out. You hypocrites! Guess what they loved most? Public flattery. You don't think that riled their cage a little bit? I think so. And here's the prophet Elijah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calling them out, mocking their false worship. Saying, come on, where's the results? Where's, these, where's this God of yours? I mean, there's 450 of you. You're cutting yourselves. You're doing all sorts of emo things. No God's showing up. What's the deal? And then Elijah prays to his God. And Yahweh sends fire from heaven that not only consumes the burnt offering, but remember it licks up every bit of water that was, that was around it. He poured water and well, he heaped water on, on the burnt offering. The wooden altar is burned and all the water that was poured over it, verses 20 to 38. The bystanders were greatly impressed and confessed newfound allegiance to Yahweh. Gee, there seems to be some real power there. All day long, we've been watching these knuckleheads do these different things. Nothing. This guy prays to Yahweh, and there's results. God chose to move in that day and age, in that moment to transform the opinion about himself to a large group of people. Don't you long for that? I just long for that. I say, God, I hope we're not so far gone that you couldn't just just do that one day. I'm sure there were hard-hearted naysayers that somehow mentioned, well, you know, the meteorologic activity tonight, whatever. But most people were greatly impressed by that. Now, Elijah orders the execution of all of Baal's prophets doesn't just say, well, they were misinformed. He actually rids them of the land, realizing there's an absolute crisis here and it's causing the people to be led astray. After announcing to the dumbfounded king that rain was about to fall, he prayed seven times on top of Mount Carmel's southeastern peak and remember what happens. Rain starts to come. The drought's over. Here's an amazing tale about the deliverance of God. It's preserved for us in Scripture for us as Christians to read. Now, if these stories weren't rooted in history, then they would be no more helpful than a fairy tale is helpful to keep wishing upon a star. And just over and over saying, gosh, I wish that kind of stuff were true. But they are in fact rooted in history. And they're preserved for us to say God doesn't change. The same God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is a spirit living inside of those who are God's own. That same power is available to us in our trials and in our weakness right now. If they weren't rooted in history, then like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you and I sitting in this room today should be the most pitied of all people. Because we ought to just be searching something else other than the risen Christ. Here's my question for you. When trials come to you, who do you instinctively run to? Think about it. A bomb goes off in your world. What's your gut reaction? Who do you run to? What do you do? The psalmist warms against some false hopes in our passage. Look at verse 8. He warns against the false hope of what I would term friends and family. You know what I think is a common response for Christians even? Is to pick up the phone and call someone. I need to talk to my sister about this. I've got to call my parents. I need to speak with my pastor. I need to talk to my community group leader. I need to talk to my best friend, my BFF. And I need to get on and talk to them. If that's your gut instinct if that's the very first place you run to listen to these verses again with that in mind verse 8 says this trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him god is a refuge for us verse 9 says this those of low estate are but a breath those of high estate are a delusion In the balances, they go up together and are together lighter than a breath. I want you to do something without hurting yourself for a moment, okay? I'm going to keep talking and not participate in this, but I want you, on the count of three, to hold your breath and hold it for as long as you can without making a scene, okay? You start to make a scene, just stop. Just breathe, okay? We're not in junior high class. All right, so on the count of three, I want you to... Junior highers, I love you. That sounded very disparaging to you. But I spent a lot of time with you guys until I know. Um... (laughs) On the count of three, I want you to hold your breath, okay? Don't look, oh, this is ch-. Do this, okay? Really hold your breath and try to hold it for as long as you can, okay? One, two, three. Now, like I said, there's no prize for this, okay? So don't hurt yourself. I'm going to keep talking. I want you to listen while I'm speaking. The point of what I'm reading in this scripture is this. Some people have a longer lifespan. Some people have a shorter lifespan, In just a few moments, some of you are going to exhale very quietly because you don't want to be known as the first one voted off of Survivor. So you're like, and you'll pretend. You'll do this to pretend you're still holding, but you've already lost. You're already out, and that's okay. There's no shame in that. You just have smaller lung capacity. You're not very competitive, whatever. But some of you are already breathing naturally and freely. You're enjoying. It feels good, huh? You can laugh a little bit, those who are in discomfort right now. Some of you, though, have incredible lung capacity, and you could hold your breath for a really, really long time, okay? Yeah, and you're nodding your head saying, yes, I'm exceedingly good at this. Here's the point. Whether you do this for a short period of time or a long... Anyone still holding their breath? Okay, wow, that's impressive. Don't hurt yourself. The tech guys in the back really can't hurt themselves. We need you. Um, here's the point, Ready? Whether short or long this morning, all of you, relatively short period of time that you can hold your breath. We're just not equipped that way. We're not designed that way. The life of someone, whether it's snuffed out relatively early or long, the Bible describes it as but a breath like that. It's talking about people of low estate. When you walk by someone, they're holding a cardboard sign and you're nervous to even look at them and read the sign, but you think in your mind, wow, there's someone who's down and out. Or you see someone walk past you on the street and they've got bling showing and a nice suit and they get into their whatever car and you go, wow, it looks like they've got the world by the tail. God says this, whether they're of high estate or low estate, you know what, you put them together and the sum total of them is that they go flying up on the scale. You know what the word glory means? The word glory means weightiness to it. There's very little glory in that. The life of a single person is snuffed out. We've had several people die. Please breathe. Can we just disagree to that? Okay, good. <laughs> I've got some really competitive friends in this room that might, might make it awkward. Uh, we also have paramedics, which is good. That's why I can do these things. Um, I often have people who come to me and they say, Dave, I need to talk to you. And as a pastor, I'd be a terrible pastor if I said, well, I don't really want to talk to you. (laughs) So so, so I talk to them. Um, But here's what I say. Here's what people who know me actually know is that if they're going to come and discuss a problem with me, if they're going to come and say, Dave, I want to pray with you, they're going to know I love to do that. I love to walk through life with people and I need people to walk through life with me. But... But over and over, here's what I say to people. I ask them this. I look at them, and if they're a Christian, I ask them this. Have you talked about this with the Lord? Sometimes people go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I prayed about it. I said, no, no, no. I didn't mean did you blow out a candle. I didn't mean did you write, uh, recite a little poem as a star came out. Have you poured out your heart? Have you waited in silence before your God, your refuge, your stronghold, before coming and talking to your pastor? I hope so, because you know what? I can't save you. I don't have the wisdom for my own life, much less for your life. So here's the deal. Go and do that first. Run to him. You know what I want to do? I want to train people to do that. I want that to be their first gut instinct. And it overjoys my heart when they say, you know me, Dave, of course I've done that. Here's how it's looked. It's been a rough few hours or few days, but I have done that. And then what I say is, man, come on in, let's, let's pray about this. Let's, let's seek the Lord together on this. Let's look to the scripture. Let's let someone who's not in the depth of the, of the valley right now offer some perspective on it. Can I encourage you to do the same thing? Here's the trap. Some of us give really good advice and are really, really good listeners and are discerning and in a moment can kind of take lots of information and actually create some, some pretty decent little comments back There can be a real deceptive pride in that. It's called the Messiah complex. Where if we're honest, we like people coming to us to untangle their messes. We like to feel needed. We like to be the one in our group of friends that people come to for advice. If you want to really help that person, if you really care about them, the most selfless thing you could do, the most God-honoring thing you could do, is to say thank you very much and point them back to the one who will meet their needs. Maybe they don't need coffee with you yet. Maybe they need to go spend that time alone with God in silence. Just waiting on Him. Here's the second thing that he warns against putting your false hopes in. Look at verse 10. If I would term that one friends and family, I would term this one the stuff of life. Two big categories that this psalmist explicitly says these are false hopes. Warning. If you're running to people, if you instinctively run to the phone or to Twitter or to text or to get together with someone and your life isn't complete until that happens, warning. Secondly, is the stuff of life. Look at verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. All you extortionists are like, bummer. Um, (laughs) Set no vain hopes on robbery. There goes that career. If riches increase, set not your hearts on them. Before you just write this up like, well, half of that doesn't apply to me, let me just put it this way. Whether gained honestly or not, don't make stuff the center of your life. That's the simple message of it. Whether you came about it in a shady way that's underhanded, blatant, or whether you just are in a period of increase, we all know the lure of taking that and making that the primary spot. And then sometimes what happens is that's the primary spot. And what what becomes our energies? What's our sacrifice to worship at that little household deity that isn't powerful to save? We spend all of our time working to make sure no one knocks that off. Don't you dare knock off my little idol. We also spend an inordinate amount of times in our own emotion, in our thought, in our money to guard it. Is it safe? Is it okay? How am I doing with it? Whether gained legally or illegally. Don't make stuff the center of your life. Psalm 115, verses 3 to 8, call it out plainly. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Pretty much covers it, right? Right? That's worshiping a block of wood. I don't have it with me, but if I had my iPhone, I might hold up my iPhone right now. That's a modern day block of wood, right? Really doesn't understand me. Really doesn't feel. Really doesn't accomplish things for me. Those who make them become like them. Plenty of movies about that that have people turning more and more into robots and machines. So so do all who trust in them. The start of this passage, by the way, is verse 3, which says this. Our our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. God is sovereign. God is the one in control. God's the one with the power. That's why the psalmist, in verse 1 and 2, and then again in verses 5 and 6, it's kind of an echo, he says these words, Him alone is my refuge. God alone and he only. Now I've given you kind of a biblical Old Testament example of a God who delivers. Let me give you a more modern day one. Bridging from the Old Testament to 2011 is a long history of songs. And one of the things as Rob and I were putting this week together and talking about it, is we just identified that it seems like so many of the hymns of the past And writers of the past had a way of taking problems and the hurts of life and writing about them and putting them in there and saying, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And all through the ages are songs of deliverance. God's people have been writing about the delivering, manifestation, power of God In song. A God powerful to deliver. The modern day example is this. I could use a lot of your stories, but I didn't get permission. I have permission to use my story. So I'll tell you about my week a little bit. Here's a modern day example of a God who delivers. A lover who is powerful to deliver. This week... um, the lack of human help is powerfully on display for me. Write down Psalm 56.4. 56.4 asks another great question. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can flesh do to me? The follow-up, the nuance to that question that I've been asking this uh, this week is this. What can flesh do for me? What can mankind really do for me when the big things of life happen? It's been one of those long weeks that I'm frankly glad is over because we get to start a new one. I shared with you, I think, last week um, about putting our dog down on Friday night of 11 years. That was the start, uh, that was the finish of a long, hard day. We found out earlier that day my dad's been diagnosed with lung cancer. And as a non-smoker, incredibly healthy person, and super close to us. He's been in our church building many times. Um, It was devastating news to us. To hear that news broke us, and we just just realized, what can flesh do for me in this moment? And then you also are comforted with, what can flesh do to me in this moment? I went to visit my dad on Wednesday. He was getting a biopsy, and I walk in, and he's recovering from having a needle jammed into his chest to look at a fist-sized tumor in his lung. And he gives me the update on the spiritual condition of about three or four of the nurses that have been visiting and working with him. Like, Dad, you've been in here since nine this morning. Here he is realizing that his lot in life on this particular Wednesday is to be flat on his back with a little gown on, and he's just on mission, just loving the Lord, just honoring God. Um. The week went on. Monday we met with his doctors and uh, I would ask that you would be praying for us and our family and just be praying for my dad. I cannot tell you. I spoke with my brother, all of my brothers about this. My one brother was here. Two others are out of town. and We've been speaking with one another. Parents, as you march on this path, as you don't leave, as you don't turn to the left or the right, let me tell you the fruit of what that looks like. Four of us boys that were raised in this home Spiritual condition is varying, let me just put it that way. But let me say this, there's been a father who's been a consistent example of who his deliverer is, of where his hope rests, and the peace now, the payoff of that, is that his sons have zero doubt of where he's going when he dies. And zero doubt in a sovereign God that if the Lord were to call him home tomorrow, The peace of Christ has guarded my heart. The peace of Christ has guarded my mind. I told my brother two days ago, we were talking, he's like, how are you holding up, bro? We're talking a little bit. I said, you know what? I said, it's weird. Because I'm not even trying to be the good Christian or be the good pastor. But I said, my heart and mind are guarded. I've got this peace. I long for my kids. I long for his grandkids to go on being served by him and to get to know him. I think about Paul who says, you know what, I'd much rather be with Jesus right now, but I'm pretty convinced I'm, used, I'm being used a lot here. I'm pretty convinced I'm going to stick around. My dad's used his retirement to invest in people. He meets regularly with people three times a week amidst other things he does. I look at that and go, Lord, maybe there's a lot more for him to do. Here's my wishes. I'll put it before you. 2 Corinthians four sixteen says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, some of you are like, amen, our inner self is being renewed day by day. A second bit of news that came to us that landed on us pretty hard was that our son's case, which many of you have been praying about, asking about, we appreciate that. People ask how many kids I have. I say that I have seven kids. Um, Six of them are stateside in the U.S. One's in Ethiopia right now. And basically some some hang-ups have happened, and it was hard. It was difficult for us this week to have that land on us as well, and the delay may be really long, and so we're grieving over that. Um, It's been a difficult week on, on that end. But what I know is that we have a sovereign God whose rule does not have everything under his control except government paperwork. I know that government paperwork is well within the sovereign rule of our God, so I'm resting in God's timing for that. Psalm 68.5 says this, that he's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. You know what I know? I know that my biological and adopted children are not saved by me. I'm not their savior. I'm not their hope. You know what my role is as a steward of these precious lives? It's to point them to the one who is their hope. Right? I know, and I praise God for the doctors and the medical care that we get in this country. I don't ever want to diminish that. It's massive. But I know our hope isn't in doctors and reports any more than the chariots of old were going to somehow save an army that was about to invade. Our hope is in God. I conclude with this idea two gods and two seasons. Uh, to introduce the idea of two gods, let me introduce an idea that came up in the 70s called the pet rock. Okay, if you were a child of the 70s, you longed for one of these. I brought up the trapper keeper from the 80s. We're jumping back about eight, eight years or so. Some ingenious, uh, I mean, what a great country, right? He's, he's at a river fishing one day for his meal, because he's starving probably. And he's like, these pets, I bet there's people dumb enough to make these Make these pets? I said, "Pets, rocks. These rocks." And so, um, so he began to to package them up, and there was this whole sales campaign to to sell your, you know, to to get a pet. And so you get a pet rock, which was basically just a smooth round rock from a river somewhere, um, and it had a little booklet on how to care for your rock and groom your rock. Um, I love, love that it came with straw, <laughs> because we wouldn't want to get that rock, you know, hurt in transport. So we have this rock, and, uh, and, and then, you know, basically, uh, it just sat there, right? I mean, it didn't really do much, um, and after a little while, you realize that, um, it's a lousy pet. Uh, you don't have to clean up after it, but it just really doesn't do much for you. It just kind of sits there. I basically look at this rock, and I think, you know, th- this is, this is, um, this was duped, people were duped into buying this as a pet. Uh, in some ways, this rock can kind of represent a God, a little household deity that people put up and, and pray to and make signs to and do whatever or bring with them. And it can represent all the different flavors that we talked about, religious and secular. And when the, the real authentic God comes, there is, there, is a, there is a weightiness to that that just displaces that household deity, it pushes it aside, and it reveals that little God for what it was. It's a block of wood. Why would you worship a block of wood? Build a chair out of it, cook a fire, You know, make a fire, do something else with it, but don't fall down and worship it. The God who's made up versus the God who is was on display uh, at Mount Carmel, but it's also on display for us. Let me just throw out a couple of ideas that I think um, we like about a made up God and the God who is. We want a God sometimes who's comfortable. God is comforting. We want comfort. God's comforting. You know what, you know when you need comforting? When you're in the deep waters. When you're in the valley of the shadow of death. That's when you need comforting. That's not comfortable. Very different ideas. We want a God who's controlled. We have a God who's in control. And frankly, you and I can't, nor should we ever try to control what God does. He's on His throne and does as He pleases. We want a God who accommodates and understands sin. That's what a lot of modern day, uh, theologically uh, tongue-tying and twisting of the Scriptures is doing. It's trying to accommodate and understand sin. We have a God who has forgiven sin. Who's paid the price for sin. We want a God who's peaceable and docile. We have a God who's a peacemaker and peace-giving. But often not peaceable. Finally, we have a God, we want a God who's kind of our ace in the hole that we that we pull out when we need Him. Instead, we have a God who's our hiding place. He's a refuge. He's a strong tower. He's the hole, essentially, that we can go and be covered in. Those are the two kinds of gods. Here's the two kinds of seasons that many of you in this room might identify with. One is this, that there's a season of life when clinging to the rock is like hiking. Clinging to the rock is easy. Gravity's working in your favor. There's sunshine out. There's not rain. The rocks aren't slippery. You've got good traction hiking boots on. And you say, cling to the rock? Piece of cake. I don't even need this silly walking stick that I paid $80 for at REI. I'm good. I'm just walking along here. I'm clinging to the rock. That's, that's the motive some of you right now. You know what? Praise God for that. But don't just bebop along and think, wow, what a great thing. I hope this lasts for a long time. Give glory to God in that. Look to, be, look to be one who could assist in others. This is when your belly's full, your bank's full, and you're healthy, and life seems good. There's a different season, though, that a lot of you have, have uh, maybe been experiencing recently, and that's where the ground seems to fall out from beneath you, and you reach out to him. Sometimes a simple phone call can rock your world. You open an envelope and it's got a pink slip in it and you're no longer employed and that scares you to death. You open a different envelope and your bank account's doing crazy things that you had no idea was going on and you're way worse off than you ever thought. A little tiny ache that started in your body, suddenly you got a report back, you got a word from a doctor that that's a major ordeal. It's not just a little ache that's going to go away with some, some medication that's when all of a sudden the ground seems to fall out from beneath you. What do you instinctively cling to? I hope it's our God. And you feel like you're barely hanging on. We talked about this last week from our psalm, where troubles surround me on all sides. Here's the big message, is that God has you. Hang on, but know that God has you. Many of you in this room recognize this as an image from our Demanding series. You know what our Demanding series at its fundamental was? is this. There's a God part to life, and there's an our part to life. Similar to a farmer. The farmer does all that he's instructed to do, all that he can do, but he cannot make a single thing grow. Totally dependent on the miracles that go on beneath the soil, on the weather, and on things that that go on. That's God's part. We're to hang on. You know how I know that? Over and over. I was just reading two days ago, I think in 1 Timothy, uh, to stand firm, to persevere, keep hanging on. That's our part. Remember from this picture, though? We're clipped in. That's the grace of God. I mean, when you feel your fingers be- barely hanging on and you go, I'm about to go. At the end of the day, you realize, my very next breath that I'm about to take, that's a gift. I really couldn't make that happen or not happen. At the end of the day, it's God who's sovereign and in control of that. That means when good news comes, thank you, God. When what we would term as bad news, rough news, terrible news, hurtful news, we might cry out like Job and say, Man, naked I came in, and I guess naked I'm going out. But praise God. Praise God today. I'm not going to defile God with my mouth or my attitude. That's where this idea of grace comes in. Grace is one of the biggest themes in all the Bible, and I cannot possibly talk about salvation and deliverance unless I get this message of grace across to you. Most of us are pre-wired and programmed to think that somehow we have to keep doing to earn this deliverance and to make sure this salvation is intact, that's the difference of Christianity from every other religious system. The Bible makes it quite plain. You are unworthy, filthy sinners, and so am I. Even our best attempts at creating a little righteous thing, say, God, look at what we did. Even that is an affront to a holy God. That seems really offensive early on, but as you mature and walk with Christ through seasons of life, you know what that becomes? That becomes a treasure to you, doesn't it? Doesn't that become a treasure that I couldn't even possibly muster up something that would deserve the kinds of grace uh, actions that I get from God? The mercy that I receive from God? Ephesians 2.8 sums it up quite well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift Of God. Over and over and over. Tell yourself that. Band, I want you to come on up. The reason Paul starts and ends every single letter with grace is he knows that nothing is accomplished apart from this gift. As you walk into this place, let it be a sanctuary for you because you don't deserve what you're about to receive from God. Nor could you muster it up What do you do with the gift but you receive it and then you just write a thank you card? If you were brought up well, you receive a gift and then you put out a thank you card. You don't go try to pay it back. You don't go try to pay for it. You don't ask for a receipt so you can indebt yourself to the person. Those are religious rituals in which there's no hope. Let me leave with a kind of benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let me pray right now. Let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to continue our worship with some songs of reflection. I'd invite you to sing along. But maybe, as Psalm 62 instructs, you should sit quietly this morning. I want you to know as worship leaders up here, we're never offended if you're sitting quietly because you ought not sing those words because they're not true in your life, or you just need to be quiet before the Lord. So you respond in whatever way is appropriate for you, but a part of our response as Christians is to give of our tithes and offerings. So that's going to be going on. Singing will be going on. And we'd invite you to respond to the words spoken today in whatever way seems appropriate. Finally, as we dismiss this morning um, in about a song or two, um, one of our elders, Kel Cummins, is going to be sticking around after service um, to talk about a parental rights amendment that's coming up. And it's vastly important to what God has specifically called our church to but really calls Christians to and I would um, encourage and challenge you to stick around and uh, listen to Kel and, and dialogue about that. We would ask, though, that you would go get your kids first and bring them back in here. And if you're not sticking around for that, it's a nice sunny day. Um, enjoy fellowship time afterwards outside. Let me pray. Father, we look to you this morning in physical stance, in our actions. God, even in the giving of money, as an expression to say, this is not where our hope lies. Would you make this prayer true of us? Would it, be, would it be so permanently written on our souls, God, that when trials come, we wouldn't rush to things or people, but we would instinctively come and wait before our God, who's strong to deliver. I pray for my friends in this room who are on sure footing God, give them eyes to see ways that they can reach out and help those around who are so needy. God, for those in this room who have gone through the ringer this week, I pray for them and myself that we would cling to you. We thank you that the community of the church does have a place in all of this. We repent, God, if we've placed the community above you. In your ability to comfort. God, we pray for this neighborhood, many of whom, God, have not tasted a single scrap of bread of what this grace of God is all about. Thank you for leaving us here on this earth, in this neighborhood, as message bearers for the good God that we serve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.